This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. We have one of the most important parashiot, though we don't, we don't really normally say which parasha is important or not important, but this parasha really changed the world. This parasha changed world history as we know it. It's hard to, hard to imagine. We don't know what it was like to live in those days, Baruch Hashem. We don't know what it's like to live in the pagan communities. We have no idea what they did, what they didn't do. All we have is some glimpses from Hammurabi's code. And uh, we see over there where the Torah says an eye for an eye. It was exactly, literally in Hammurabi's code. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You kill someone's grandfather, they kill your grandfather. You kill someone's servant, they kill your servant. You kill someone's daughter, they kill your daughter. It's a crazy tit-for-tat society. It was a crazy tit-for-tat society where there was law and order. Where there was no law and order, anything went. People would feed their parents to dogs. I mean, it was a mad society. It was a pagan society. There was no laws. There was no order. There was no morality. And we know in Egypt, there was totally no morality. The pharaohs were, uh, you know, if, uh, if brothers and sisters would get married to have children. Uh, the pharaoh did his, the, the dynasty. And that's, anyway, so the first big moral code is in this week's parasha. The first big moral code. So this week's parasha is a code adopted by the Christianity uh, 1,500 years later or so, and adopted later on by Islam, more or less, uh, another, another 600 years later. So Judaism changed the world. Which part of Judaism changed the world? The law codes of Judaism, not just the stories and this is where the Torah is making a transition from stories to a book of law. In this week's parasha, the Torah is making a massive transition. It's entering a new phase. It slowly becomes a book of laws. So Breshit, beautiful stories, Hashem's interaction with human beings, spirituality, you see the great spiritual beings who interacted with God and, and spoke to God and God spoke back to them. And before the Torah was given, these are, these are amazing, uh, what do you call them, uh, geniuses, spiritual geniuses who could, who could link themselves with the divine without any book of code and without any concrete uh, way of life. They could just link themselves to God. That's amazing. They, they're spiritual, I call them spiritual geniuses or spiritual giants. What happened was that no one else could do it. Very few people could reach that level of the forefathers. And therefore, Hashem had to give us a code. How do you, what do you do? What do you have to do to become spiritual? What do you have to do to get a vision of God? What do you have to do to link yourself to God? What do you have to do? How do we have to serve God? All these are critical pieces of information that the forefathers had intuitively. They didn't have a book. They didn't have any rules. They had intuition. And their intuition was godly inspired intuition and just a, a spiritual thirst. They were thirsting for God. If you look for God, you'll find him. If you don't look, you're not going to find him. Very simple. If you're searching and searching, then he's going to, that's how Abraham Avinu discovered Hashem. So by searching and by looking and by thinking and by uh, his meditation. And same thing, Yitzhak and Yaakov and, and the, the tribes eventually. But in Egypt, there was no system. In Egypt, Everything was uh, forgotten. Everything was forgotten because of the yoke of servitude. Slaves don't have time to think. Slaves don't have time to meditate. Slaves become machines. They become human machines, unfortunately, tragically, and they're oppressed. Maybe the tribe of Levi, who are not working, 
they maybe had some kind of glimpse. And that's why our first prophets, Miriam and Aaron and Moshe came from Levi, because they didn't have that servitude. They still had this spiritual tradition going back to Yaakov, you know, from Levi, their grandfather. So that's maybe that's the reason why they were chosen to be the leaders, because they had that spiritual energy Whereas the rest of the Jews did not. They were slaves. What, what did they do? So when Hashem took us out of Egypt, he has to give us a code of laws, some direction, some structure. Spiritual structure starts, well, basically it started a few weeks ago, two weeks ago in the parasha Bor, and the parasha Bor talks about sanctification of time. Uh, last week's parasha gives us a few of the laws of Shabbat and laws of manna, you know, structure in life, what you do in the morning, what you do in the afternoon, structure in life. But this week is really the big bang, the big, this big spiritual bang. There was a big bang in the creation, and there's a big bang in Revelation. We have two big bangs in our, in our Torah. The first big bang was, there was, no, <laughs> there was no, no one around to witness the first big bang. There were no human beings around to witness that first big bang. Human beings could not exist at the time of the Big Bang. There was no earth, there was no sun, there was nothing. Big Bang. The second Big Bang was the Bang of Revelation. That's the Big Bang in this week's parasha. Massive Big Bang. If you want, you can consider the Ten Plagues also as a Big Bang. But it's not really Revelation. Hashem revealed himself through plagues. Not a very nice way of revealing yourself. But through bad things that happened to other people by separating what happened to the Egyptians and the Jews. So they knew that Hashem was around, Hashem was in control. But here we have a big bang, which is revelation, mass revelation, something which has not happened since then. It happened in certain cases. We find that in Prophet Shmuel, when he gives the talks to the Jewish people and he did miracles and they were inspired, or when the Prophet Elijah appears on Mount Carmel. And uh, he brings fire from heaven, uh, massive, massive revelation, but it didn't last. The mass revelation did not last. Here we have a mass revelation of three million people. Approximately three million people came out of Egypt and then a mass revelation. So let's talk about it. So the Chumash is entering a new phase. It's slowly becoming a book of law. Torah means teachings. We know the word Torah means teachings. So before we had a, a book of a code based on our forefathers, based on their interactions with God and other people's interactions with God and God interacting with society. But here we have Hashem's presence being visibly uh, felt, not shown, but physically and, and, and visibly felt by people we're going to talk about. And that's mass revelation. But, and now we're going to transition to book of laws. This primary focus shifts from being an ongoing narrative of the forefathers and the foremothers and Yetziat Mitzrayim and coming out of Egypt and the Mitzvot, which Bnei Israel received at Har Sinai. We're coming to Mitzvot. We're coming to a commander and commandments. We are coming to Sefer Mitzvot, book of uh, Mitzvot, a book of commandments, and it starts off with a commander. Without a commander, there's no commandments. You cannot do a mitzvah and claim to not believe in God. It's not a mitzvah. It's not a command. A mitzvah is a command. It's not just a good deed. It's a real mistranslation for those who want to deny God's presence, right? It's a good deed. I'm doing a good deed. But are you doing a commandment or a good deed? If you're doing a good deed, it's not a commandment. It's got to be a command. It's got to be godly inspired. Otherwise, it's not a commandment. So to do commandments, you have to believe in a commander. 
And that's what we're going to see in this week's parasha is the commander and the commandments. So Sefer Bereshi, the book of Bereshi, Genesis explains why and how God chose Abraham. Why and how did God choose Abraham to be the forefather of our spiritual nation, which we're going to talk about also this week's parasha, calls us the chosen people. Um, um, uh, segula. We're going to be a chosen people for God, a special people, more, more than chosen um, the word chosenness denotes uh, other people are not chosen, people don't like that. That's a lot of anti-Semitism. But it's really, it's Am Segula. It's a nation of charm. It's Hashem's charm. Hashem desires us. Hashem feels that we are precious. That's what it means. Precious nation, a precious nation to God. And so why did Hashem choose Abraham and the forefathers? And the answer is very simply, because they chose God. When you choose God, God chooses you. Very simple. It's Mida Kadegan Mida. You choose God, God chooses you. You believe in God, God says, I'm with you. I'm here with you, Rambam says. The more you believe Hashem's around, Hashem is even more around for you. That's what's called Hashkacha Pratit, uh, divine uh, control, divine providence. It's called Hashkacha Pratit, divine providence. The more we believe in divine providence, the more divine providence there is. So you can have two people in a train, one's thinking about Hashem, one is not, when a bus, Eged bus, uh, today you say Eged buses, but you know, well, a lot of the buses are not Eged anymore. They're trying to, they broke the monopoly of Eged, so Eged is not, no longer all the buses are Eged, so there's lots of different bus companies in Israel, it's amazing. So you're in an Israeli bus, and there's two people on the bus, or 50 people on the bus, some people are thinking about God. God is with them. Some people are thinking about business, okay. They're thinking about God and business, okay, no problem. <laughs> but everyone has their own thoughts. The more we bring God into our life, that's the whole purpose, all the blessings we made, and you know, the mezuzah on the door, and uh, all these mitzvot we do from time to time are all drawing us and linking us and reminding us of something that is so easy to forget. We, the mitzvot, the whole purpose of everything is to remind us of God. There's a God in our lives. There's a God in control. There's a God who's the creator. And today is the God of Revelation. The book of uh, Shemot is the God of Revelation and power that Abraham never, never, never saw, never thought of, never dreamt of. Maybe he did dream about it. But here we have God is showing himself. It's never been done before in history. God is showing himself directly, not indirectly. He's showing himself to the nation directly. The Ramon says, this is the source of our belief in God. The proof of belief in God is not all the miracles that Moshe Rabbeinu made. Many people claim they did miracles. The belief, our belief in God is based on our own revelation, our people's revelation. You know, the people, the Jewish people are the most cynical people around. Definitely the most cynical people around. To get Jews to believe in anything is so hard. You know, the most, we've been through a lot in our history and we don't accept things so easily. We're cynical. And uh, You come to Israel, you'll see you cynicism, the brute force of cynicism today in Israeli society. We a lot of cynicism over here. So, okay, it's good. Cynicism is good. So for Jews to actually believe that this event happened and to believe that we saw God, you can see, we're the most cynical people and we're still believing in it. It's, it's something happened. 3,400 years ago, approximately, 3,400 years ago, an event happened in history that changed the history of the world. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Sefer Shemot explains how God fulfilled the covenant with the forefathers, redeemed the nation from slavery in Egypt, 
before this nation enters the promised land, where they're going to live according as God's nation, which we're going to talk about um, a nation of priests, a holy nation, Hashem refers to the Jewish people this week's parasha, a nation of priests and a holy nation, which we have to talk about. What's the difference between a, whole, a nation of priests and a holy nation? Goy Kadosh, right? Uh, a holy nation. It's never been thought of before. A nation who is holy, not just one class of the nation, not just the priests are holy. The whole nation has to be holy. All of us have to be holy. A nation of priests. Who are priests too? And the answer is we're going to be the priests to the entire world. We have to be the role models for the entire world. So that is the, we are chosen for that. That is our burden. It's a burden. It's not something which is, chosenness is not something which we relish. Chosenness is a massive burden. If Hashem chose us, it's not for nothing. It's to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's the purpose of Judaism. Before this nation enters the promised land, where they're going to live as God's nation, they must first receive the guidebook, the Torah, the guide which will make them into a spiritual special nation. So interesting. Where do we find a nation which received its laws before they enter the land? (laughs) You never find that. It's never been done in history. Normally, a nation uh, is on a land, and then eventually they get a constitution. Happened all through the society, but this nation is different from all the other nations. We get our law in a desert. We got a code, a constitution in the desert. It's never been done before, and never will be done again. It would have been logical for the Torah to have been presented all the mitzvah with the narrative of how Bnei Israel made it to Israel instead of this clear structured order, there's a blend of narrative and mitzvot. There's no real order. If you see these parashot, there's narrative and then there's mitzvah, there's a narrative and there's a mitzvah. Why this blend? Why not just a straight law book? I don't know about you, but if, if the Judaism, if the Torah is just a straight law book, it would make very tedious reading. It would just be for a nation of lawyers. And you know what? That's why Jews are so good at law. Just read Gemara and Mishnah. It's all law books with it's tedious law. Actually, it's not so tedious because it's fun. It's interesting. Uh, there's so many varieties, so many different aspects of Judaism that you get bogged down in one aspect. You know, there's another aspect to wake you up. So there's so many different aspects. And a person should learn Torah, the part that excites them. The part of Torah you should learn the most is the part of Torah that excites you the most. So if you're drawn to uh, stories of the forefathers, Learn them. You're drawn to Midrash, learn Midrash. You're drawn to Jewish law. Obviously, everyone needs the basics of Jewish law, but if you're drawn to it, learn it more. If you're drawn to Talmud, learn Talmud. If you're drawn to Mishnah, learn Mishnah. If you're drawn to Kabbalah, learn Kabbalah. Whatever draws you, the main thing is learning. The main thing is learning. Why? Because learning is the connection to God. Learning Torah is a connection to God. We said there's two ways to connect to God one is through nature, and one is through learning. You know, interesting. I was just reading that result says that a person should be able to look out at the sky from their house. He says, looking at the sky is such a connect. It's a connect, Asha. Looking at the sky is so important for spirituality. Looking at nature is so important for spirituality. And we don't really realize because we're cooped up in our houses, especially in the wintertime, but a person has to have an open window and at least see the sky. You know, at least not, hopefully it's not gray all the time. <laughs> because the last week it's been... It's terribly gray in Israel, but, you know, it's good. It's all good because we got the rain. We got a month's rain in a few days, Baruch Hashem. 
Everyone was worried. We never got rain this year. It's been very dry. Well, Hashem laughed at us and said, Look, I got a sense of you about my friends. I'm going to give you enough rain for a few, in a few days. You'll get enough rain for a month. Okay, Baruch Hashem. So, so why does the Torah not just give us straight law? No, it gives us narratives. This week's parasha is amazing because the Ten Commandments are in a parasha called Yitro. Now, who is Yitro? He wasn't even Jewish. Strange. Who would you put the Ten Commandments? Give the credit. Imagine. You give the credit to this guy, Yitro. Why are the Ten Commandments in a parasha called Yitro? Put the Ten Commandments in a parasha called Moshe. That'd be more appropriate. Put the parasha in a, in a, in a parasha called Miriam, the prophetess. In a parasha called Aaron. There's no parasha called Moshe. There's no parasha called Aaron. There's no parasha called Moshe. Then Miriam. There's a parasha called Yitro. Who was Yitro? Yitro was Kohen Midian, the Torah He was a priest of idolatry. In fact, he tried every single idolatry in the world. And he comes to the conclusion that worthless. They're all empty. There's no such thing as a power other than Hashem. Okay, Hashem. Who is like Hashem among the other gods? I tried every other god. There's nothing like God. There's nothing like Hashem. Hashem is the only God. So why did we put, why did Hashem put the Ten Commandments in Yitro. And by the way, it's not Ten Commandments. We're going to talk about it. It's Ten Sayings. Ten Sayings. Ramam lists 14 commandments in the Ten, ten Sayings. So Ten Commandments is a misnomer. It's not a Jewish concept. It's a foreign concept that came into Judaism. I don't know why. I don't know where it came from. It's Ten Sayings. Aseret Hadivarim. Ten Sayings. We always know the Ten Commandments. There's five on this, uh, five on this side, five on this side. That, that became the um, the two stones, the two tablets. You know, Moshe had a headache. Hashem said, I'll give you two tablets. Uh, but, uh, okay, so why not put all the laws in like a code, like a shukhara ruh? Make the Torah like a shukhara. No! It's in a form, narrative law, narrative law. Keep people's attention and draw you also to who kept this law. Who are the people who kept the laws? And the Ten Commandments in a book, in a parasha called Yitro, why Yitro? And the answer is because what's the first word in the parasha? By Yishma Yitro. Yitro heard. <laughs> Yitro heard what? He heard three things. He heard that God took the Jews out of Egypt. He heard that the Jews crossed the Red Sea. He heard that the Jews fought Amalek and won. And he heard that the Jews are going to get the Torah. Yitro heard all these things. Now, it wasn't just Yitro hearing all these things. The whole world was in a hubbub. Everyone's hearing you know, rumors, you know, Pharaoh, the 10 plagues in Egypt, uh, the crossing of the sea, the I say, all the waters in the world split. This, the whole world knew at that time something's going on, something strange is going on in this world. And, uh, you know, we know that uh, the Canaanites were hearing all these things and they were terrified. Rahab tells them, Yoshua sends spies to uh, Canaan and Rahab tells them everyone's terrified. We know that God is on your side. We heard about the crossing of the sea. We heard, everyone heard. This. The rumors were flying. But you know what? The whole world heard. But no one did anything about it. Whereas Yitro heard and he came. Yitro, the hearing, this hearing that Yitro heard, changed Yitro. That's, that's why the Ten Commandments are in a parasha called Yitro. 
that we have to not just hear events and ignore them, we have to let the events seep in and change who we are. The events of the Ten Commandments, the events of this parasha, we have to also hear what Yitro heard. We have to let the words and the sights and the sounds that we saw penetrate us. And just like Yitro was penetrated by these events, we have to be penetrated. So Yitro is our role model. By Yishma Yitro, Yitro heard, he didn't hear, went in one ear and came out the other. He listened and he paid attention and he changed who he was because of what he heard. And that's when we listen to the Ten Commandments, it's not just going to be we heard it and when in one ear came out the other. It's going to actually penetrate and change our behavior. That's, that's why it's in Parsha Yitro, because Yitro heard and he changed. And that's why Yitro is so important. Yitro is a convert. And the rabbis say, we all converted at Har Sinai. That's a very hard. All of us are converts. We all converted as Jews at Har Sinai. What does that mean? It says one of three things for a convert is, number one is they got to want to be Jewish. They've got to accept God. And they accepted God when they, when they sacrificed the Korn Pesach, when they killed the God of the Egyptians. They are ready, willing to die for God. God says, take the God of Egypt and kill it in front of everyone on the 10th of the month and tie it to your bedpost. I mean, there's no less way of dealing with a God. Imagine, tie the God to your bedpost. If you did this in India to the cow today, people would go mad. There'd be a riot in the street talked about. So that's not what they have to accept. God, they crossed the sea. They showed the emuna in God across the sea. And then they have to accept the commandments. That's Har Sinai. They accept the commandments. Naseb and Ishma, we will do, we will keep. They accept the commandments. And the Brit Milah they had in Egypt. So they had this Brit Milah. And the rabbis say there was a stream. When Moses hit the rock the first time, last week's parasha, Moses hit the rock, there was no water. Which rock did he hit? It was a rock on Mount Sinai. People don't realize that. The stream was from Mount Sinai. And that stream made a mikvah, made a natural mikvah. And all the Jews went into that stream as a mikvah and they converted to Judaism. And they accepted there were three parts of the conversion, actually four. The fourth part is uh, bringing a korban, which we can't have, we don't have today. Every convert will eventually have to bring a korban when the temple is rebuilt by Jerusalem. But we don't have that today. But the Jews brought the korban straight after Harsinai. So there were four parts to becoming Jewish. Number one is Brit Milah, which they did in Egypt. Number two is they went into this river, the, the, the mikvah, the stream at Sinai. And number three is they accepted the Torah, they accepted Naseb and Ishma. Number four is the Korban. So why is this in Parsha Yitro? And the answer is because we all have to be Yitros. We all have to let this event penetrate us and change who we are. Yitro changed completely. Yitro became Jewish. The truth is, we all became Jewish at the same time. So Yitro is just a prototype for us. He became Jewish, we become Jewish. So the intricate way the Torah presents the mitzvot begs us to pay attention, not only to the mitzvot themselves, but also to the context and people who are changed by these mitzvot. The context is also important. To fully appreciate the Chumash, we must not only study the mitzvot, but also the manner of their presentation. How were the mitzvot presented? presented. So let's go back. But Yishma Yitro, Yitro heard. Yitro was so impressed 
by what he had heard, he converted to Judaism. When did Yitro come? Big debate. Rashi says he came, Rashi says, even though it says in this week's parasha, he came before the Torah was given. No, he came after. Rashi says there's no order in the Torah's presentation in terms of chronology, and Yitro came later. Ramban says we should assume everything is in order, unless there's a real proof that it's not in order. So let's, let's assume Yitro came now. Ibn Ezra says there's significant evidence that Yitro came to B'nai Israel after Matan Torah. So, however, the Torah juxtaposes, listen to this, the Torah juxtaposes the hatred of Amalek with the love of Yitro. In other words, don't think that everyone hates Jews. Not true. Amalek hated Jews, but here we have Yitro who comes and throws in his lot to the Jewish people. So there's two kinds of people in the world. There's people who hate Jews and people who love Jews. And I'm sure there are people also who just don't care. They're indifferent about Jews. <laughs> but it seems to us, you know, most people hate Jews, but it's not true. A lot of people love Jews. They just don't show themselves. They're not so vocal maybe in their support, but a lot of people love Jews. So there's Yitros in the world as well. There are spiritual people what we call Hasidei Amukumot HaOlam. They were Gentiles who saved Jews during the Holocaust. These are the righteous of the, gen- of the Gentiles. The rich, righteous people are Gentiles. In Israel, they plant trees for these people and they memorialize these people in, uh, in, in different places. And these are called the Gentiles of the, the righteous Gentiles. So Ibn Ezra said, beautiful idea. Just like people hate us, Amalek hated us people who love us as well, Yitro, and his family come and they all become Jewish. So we have to realize that we're obligated to recognize the support of Yitro. How do we do that? By expressing kindness to his descendants. His descendants lived in Jericho. It's interesting. Jericho was destroyed. The land was given to the descendants of Yitro. We find the descendants of Yitro given. So this way we we show our appreciation to Yitro by giving appreciation to his descendants for generations. What did he throw here? We talked about this different things. So the Gemara brings down three different opinions. What did he throw here that made him come and change? What did he throw here? It's a Meseches Vachim 116a. Rabbi Yeshua says he heard Muhammad Amalek. He heard the war with Amalek. And he came. Rabbi Yezah says Matan Torah Shammah. He heard the giving of the Torah. Rabbi Yezah says, this is Rabbi Yezah, who can different Rabbi Yezah, Kriyat Yom Suf Shammai, he heard the crossing of the sea. Even though Torah says that Yitra heard, he heard everything, he heard all three. The question is, what specific thing changed him the most? That's the debate. Obviously, he heard everything. What specific? Everyone has something that's going to change them. We're just going to find that. Every, every person in the world has something that will influence them. And that's why it's very dangerous to educate every child the same way. Every child has a way to turn them on, and every child has a way to turn them off. Each child is different. You cannot talk to children the same way. Every child has to be taught in a different way. And that's uh, King Solomon says in Mishlei, Teach a child according to his way, not your way, his way. What will motivate the child? What will motivate the person? It's very critical to find that. So Yitro was turned on by something. And that was the debate. What turned him on? Obviously he heard everything. What turned him on? What, what caused his soul to erupt? 
and uh, catch fire. What caused Yitro's soul to erupt and catch fire? That was a question. Um, and this is a very important point, that there's something that can cause a person's soul to catch fire. We just have to find it. And, and you know what? We have, to, we have to find it for ourselves. Let's work on it. <laughs> Let's find it for ourselves. What causes our own souls to spiritually erupt? A volcano of spirituality. What causes? We've got to find that motivator and use it on ourselves. And then we can find something which our children, but we got to find what can motivate their children. Oy. That's, uh, you know, the, the joke is that three old ladies, uh, Jewish ladies, sit on a park bench. And one says, oi, and the other one says, oi, oi, and the other one says, oi, oi, oi. And then the one says to the other, he says, I thought we, we decided we're not going to talk about our children anymore. Oi, 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 oi. Okay, so something can light a fire in a person's soul. What motivated you, Tro? That was the question. Okay, so different opinions. So now we go to Matan Torah. Let's go a little bit into Matan Torah. What does Hashem do before Matan Torah? And the answer is, he's trying to ignite our soul. How, is, how are human beings ignited? And the answer is just like movies ignite people. Special effects. It's called special effects. Now, obviously, these special effects ignite a person temporarily. But they do leave a kind of uh, remembrance. The more special they are, you know, people talk about it and they tell their children about it, their grandchildren about it. You know what I saw, you know what I saw. So Hashem is going to use tremendous special effects. I mean, we can't even imagine the power of God. Imagine Hashem using special effects. The rabbi said, these special effects actually cause people to die. And they had to be revived by the angels. <laughs> so, okay, you know, Hashem can kill a person. Hashem can bring them back, you know, no problem. But it was special effects, that point where they were so startling and so amazing and so awesome that the souls left them. They were just so awesome. They just stunned. They were stunned and frightened. And uh, they were just stuck over there. Like they wanted to run away. The rabbi said they ran away. And the Benish Chai says, that's the reason we go three steps back when we pray the Shmon You know why we go three steps back before we pray the Shmon Because a person should be frightened by God's presence and feel it's awesome. Go back. That's what the Jews did at Mount Sinai. Says they ran away. They were so struck. And so it was such an awesome sight. They ran away. So we run away before the Shmon and then we slowly, timidly come back to speak to God. Position. Revelation is, is uh, we have to get ready for it. We have to get ready for Revelation because Revelation is awesome. And uh, the Jews, it took them 49 days only. Only 49 days. That's why we count the Omer. 49 days to prepare for Revelation. Unfortunately, it wasn't enough. And it didn't stick into them the way it should have stuck into them. But the truth is that it did stick into them. The fact is we're here today. The fact is that 3,500 years later, we, their descendants, are still keeping the Torah. We, their descendants, are still keeping the Torah. We're still talking about the Ten Commandments, Baruch Hashem, the Ten Sayings. Let's go back. So what happened is Hashem, there's thunder and there's lightning. Now, don't forget, there's a thing called Tikkun Shavuot, Leil Shavuot. We all went to sleep. It says the Jews are so exhausted by their trek through the desert. They come to Mount Sinai. They're so exhausted. They're all fast asleep. Hashem has to wake them up. Now, how do you wake people up? Oh, boy. What's the spiritual alarm clock Hashem uses? It's called thunder and lightning. And a, a big sound of the shofar. 
Well, I just want to quote you the Torah. This is in Parsha Yitro, chapter 19 of uh, Shemot, Exodus, verse 16. Really look it up, especially the Shabbat. She was on the third day. This is the third day coming from a different place, Refidim, uh, when they fight with Amalek. Three days later, they're walking, journeying, and they're preparing themselves. Hashem says, prepare yourselves for the revelation. It took three days of preparation, and it was in the morning. And kolot, thunder, brakim, lightning, and there was a big cloud, a thick cloud on the mountain. And a very loud shofar blast. Now, this shofar blast is different from all other shofar blasts. Why? Because the human shofar blast, it starts off being strong and then it gets weaker and weaker. This shofar blast started weak and started getting stronger and stronger, built to a crescendo. And all the nation trembled in the camp. It's a dangerous wow. So Rashi says, why? Why all these special effects? To put the fear of God in the heart and the minds of the people. Why? You want to make people to remember this awesome event. It's got to be an awesome event that's going to change people. You need something really awesome to change people. They want to put, Russia says, to put fear of God in them, not just in them, through them, through their, to their children, grandchildren, in their minds. They ran away. They fainted. It was an awesome experience. According to Rambam, our Emunah is based on divine revelation at Sinai, where we saw and we heard the revelation. How can we see God? And the answer is impossible. You can experience things, but you cannot see God. This is expressed in three times repeated warnings. Hashem gives Moshe to tell the people. Don't climb Mount Sinai, you can't see God. Don't climb Mount Sinai. Please don't climb Mount Sinai. In fact, he tells Moshe to build a fence around Mount Sinai. And then he says again, don't tell him not to, you know, maybe some people are so attracted to spirituality. They're willing to sacrifice everything to see. To see what it is. What is this? And it's a, is it possible to see? Come on, man. It's impossible. How can you see God? It's impossible. There's no such thing as God in terms of physical, there's no physical representation of God. You're going to see in the command itself. There's no such thing as a physical representation of God. So what do they see? They saw this cloud and they felt the awesome signs and wonders. That's what they saw. They felt things. There's a tremendous psychological need, especially at that time, of man trying to see God. To express that he is unknowable, Hashem warned them of trying to see him. He fenced off the mountain. Also, the loud sound of the shofar and the earthquake. There was an earthquake there as well. Hashem wished that our two major senses of vision and hearing were overwhelmed. Now, it's interesting because, you know, it's an earthquake this week as well. We have to try and envisage this earthquake at Mount Sinai. Obviously, it wasn't 7.9, the Richter scale take time, but it must have been 4 or 5. Enough to shake them up. They were shaken up completely. Two major senses of vision and hearing were completely overwhelmed. These overwhelming sensations were to contribute to our admission that we cannot fathom our ship. There's no way. Our, our minds are blown. Our, 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 all the circuits are blown. The fence prevented physical attempts to see God, while the other special effects address man's thoughts. 40, 40 years later, Moshe Rabbeinu reminds the people before he dies. You saw no form on Mount Sinai. Only sound. You didn't see anything. You just heard, heard sounds because it's impossible to see Hashem. Oh, so, so, uh, imagine 
it's hard to imagine this whole experience. And so we have to try and relive this experience every year. We have to try and relive the whole the experience every year. So let's try and relive it this year when we, when we hear these Ten Commandments. And all the people saw the sounds. Now, this is a very strange statement. The people saw sounds. How can you see sounds? What does it mean to see sounds? Hearing alone is indiscriminate. You hear from all over, 360 degrees. We're hearing from all over. We hear sounds from all over, from all directions. Whereas sight is much more focused. You have to look around for sight. The sounds of Atantara have to be heard by the same tight listening that is represented by sight. They saw the sounds means they were totally focused on the sounds of the Ten Commandments, the Ten Sayings. Hence, B'nai Israel physically saw the sounds to enhance their ability to listen properly. Imagine, if you can see and hear sounds, you'd be more affected by them. If you can only hear sounds, you're not as affected, but when you see the sound, you see... Some people are very musical, so they can actually see the sounds in front of their eyes. You see the, they see the tunes, they see the musical uh, notes in front of them. When, when the piano is playing, they see notes. They don't just hear the piano, they see the notes as well. That's the idea. The idea is when you hear the Torah, you're meant to see it as well. When you hear these mitzvot, you're meant to see the mitzvot. It's got to be a visceral experience. Something that will change a person. Or they saw the sounds, but they had turned off the ears. They were not listening deeply. We pierced the ear of the Jewish slave. He didn't listen to Mount Sinai. He didn't listen to Don't Steal. Rabbi Huda says, Sing Shema Israel. Let's go back to Shema Israel. Hear, O Israel, we all the translation. Hear, O Israel, it's totally mistranslation. It's listen, O Israel. Hearing is not enough. A person has to listen to what they're saying. What does that mean? It means they have to understand what they're saying. A person says Shema Israel, they don't understand it. They don't, they don't feel the obligation. Whereas if they say it and they don't hear it, they just whisper it to themselves. They don't hear it. They still fulfill the obligation. So hearing is not hearing. Hearing is understanding it. Hearing the Torah is not hearing the Torah. It's understanding the Torah. It's not just through the years. It's got to be a total sensation. Immersion. That's what it is. Total immersion. You know, that's how they try and teach languages. Right? Try and teach languages by immersion. How do you learn languages? It's so hard to learn languages. If you're immersed in a language... You're living it, and people around you are speaking. That's how I learned Hebrew. I learned Hebrew in yeshiva. It was an Israeli yeshiva. <laughs> it was so hard, boy. It was six months really hard um, to sit there, all Israelis around me, and my chavruto speaking Hebrew. And it took a while to break through the barrier of language, and then to break through the barrier of the shir itself to understand what the rabbi was talking about. It took six months, so... So it's, a, it's an immersion. It's a total immersion. The Jews at Mount Sinai were immersed in the experience. It was a physical, spiritual experience like no other experience we could ever imagine. It was also a, a, a prophetic experience. That's the point. It was not just a physical experience. It was a spiritual, prophetic revelation. It was a revelation, mind-blowing, a heart-blowing revelation. It was a revelation. And then after two commandments, they just couldn't take any more. They told Moshe, we can't. We can't take any more of this experience. It's blowing our minds. We're going crazy. It's, we're going to die. We just can't take it. Okay, now we believe you, Moshe. Now we believe you. We believe that God spoke to you. 
You just tell us what else God's going to say to, to us. We believe you now. You're our prophet. This is, Ramav says, this is the proof that they had finally that God was speaking to Moshe. You know, Pharaoh thought Moshe was a big magician. But I'm sure there are many Jews who also thought that, God was, that Moshe was a magician. And Moshe was making things up. You know, till today, there's many Jews. So, you know, Moshe made up the whole Torah. You know, Moshe. Well, if you were studying at Mount Sinai and you said that, yeah, yeah they think you're mad. Yes, God, God, you can't hear God talking to, to all of us. That's the proof, Rambam says. That's a proof. The biggest proof we have is God spoke to everyone. There's no other religion that's based on mass revelation. See, the one person saw, 12 people saw, 13 people saw, nothing more. Only religion that's based on mass revelation is Judaism. It's the most solid foundations for a religion. That's a realm of sense. Most solid, most solid foundation for religion is when we can say we saw and we heard and we were there. That's what we were. That's what, that's what changed us. Okay, so it's not just hearing, it's listening. It's paying attention. It's understanding. It's understanding. Okay, the oneness of God, the unity of God. And the fact is they heard the voice from all directions. It's like unity. Every, every direction you could hear God. Every direction of space and time you could hear God. They heard God from all angles. So we have to understand that our, our life changes. So where else do we see this? Yitro, his life was changed because he understood what was happening. Rabbi Akiva says, this beautiful story it says, is, his future wife, Rachel, this Rachel, this amazing woman who saw his uh, potential. How could she see the, this man's potential, the shepherd, who's going to be here, a shepherd for Am Yisrael, who's going to be the greatest rabbi that lived since Moshe Rabbeinu. How, how could she see this potential, this man? I have no idea. This great woman, Rachel. Uh, all our Torah is because of Rachel. That's what he's told his students. Your Torah and my Torah is because of this woman. And we have to say the same thing today because all our Torah is from Rachel. Who chose this Rabbi Akiva? Our Torah comes from the students of Rabbi Akiva who survived the Romans. So, Rabbi Akiva, the turning point in Rabbi Akiva's life was because he heard the, the sounds, the rabbis say, of the water dripping on this rock and looking at the rock and seeing the water made an indent on the rock. So, he said, if the water can make an indent on the rock, the Torah can enter my head. So, in other words, some things that we see in our lives have to penetrate. It's not just they happen. I mean, even this earthquake just now, it has to penetrate us, the power of God, anytime, anywhere, just being the right place, the right time. It's we have to believe that these things are not just by chance. Everything is happening. Hashem is there. Hashem is looking after us. The fact is, I didn't go to Turkey this week. And not that I was thinking about going to Turkey this week, but it's also, <laughs> it's also God's plan. Where it's going to be, who knows where, when, whatever, we have to believe. So these events, these events cannot, we see all these events around us, but it doesn't change us. We have to know which events will change us, which events won't change us. We have to start thinking like Yitro. Certain events that happen, Yitro changed the man. He accepted, he became a Jew. I mean, you can't get a bigger decision than that for a non-Jew, to change into a Jew. Now, what about a Jew himself? And the answer is to become a believing Jew, become a good Jew, become a Torah observant Jew, that is... What's going to make us Torah? Something has to be. So just reading these accounts and seeing these things in our mind's eye, hopefully will change us. It did change them. So compare 
Buzz Aldrin, the Havdil. Buzz Aldrin on the moon and a Russian cosmonaut. And Buzz Aldrin says, I saw God. And the Russian cosmonaut said, I didn't see God. So, <laughs> so two people could have the same experience. And one can, be, can make it a spiritual experience. And one can make it a totally physical experience. So it depends on the person. depends how they're listening. It depends what's in the back of their mind. The Al-Sheikh says Yitro was the only one who drew far-reaching conclusions from what he'd heard. We see this later on in the book of Joshua, Rachav. The Torah calls her Zonah, but Rashi says, from the word Mizonot, she would provide. She was an innkeeper. Rachav, the innkeeper, also took to heart what was happening around them. She also converted, and she married Joshua. She married Joshua. She became the wife of Yeshua. So let's just, in a recent survey, carried out by Mariv newspaper. Listen to these statistics. 88% of adult population of Israel did not remember all the Ten Commandments. 25% had trouble even remembering one commandment. 40% do not know what the five books of Moses are. Uh, think of this is Israel. Can you imagine what it's like outside Israel? So let's just quickly go through these commandments. So Ramam says, we said the 10 sayings, and Ramam says there are 14 commandments. Number one, to believe in the existence of one indivisible, all-powerful, invisible, unchanging God. That's number one. Anochi Hashem Elokecha, I am the Lord, your God, who took me out of the land of Egypt. Number two, do not believe in any other God besides him. Number three, not to make any shapes or forms that are worshipped. Number four, not to bow to any idolatry. Number five, not to serve any idolatry in its normal way of service, even though it's disgusting sometimes. Number six, not to take an oath in God's name falsely. Number seven, to sanctify the Shabbat with words, which is Kiddush, we talked about that. Number eight, not to perform creative forms of work on Shabbat. Number nine, to honor one's parents. Number 10, not to shed innocent blood. Number 11, not to commit adultery. Number 12, not to kidnap. Number 13, not to bear false witness. Number 14, a hard one, not to covet the neighbor's property, wife or husband or belongings and plan to obtain them for oneself. So these are the, according to Rambam, these are the 10 sayings, which are 14 commandments. Well, there are 613 commandments in the Torah. That's why a lot of rabbis don't like to say this is the most important parasha in the Torah. That's why there's a big debate amongst Sephardim and Ashkenazim. Do you stand up for the Ten Commandments or not? Ashkenazim stand up for the Ten Commandments. Sephardim say, oh no, Rambam says, don't stand up for the Ten Commandments because people believe you only have to stand up for the Ten Commandments because they're the most important commandments. Rambam says that's a big danger. A lot of people made that mistake, including the Karaites, which the Rambam had to fight. The Ten Commandments are just Ten Commandments out of 613. Okay, they are very important commandments, no question. But they're not more important than any other commandment. So interesting. I just want to go through a little bit of the Mechilta, which is the Halachic Midrash of this parasha. And the Mechilta talks about the two tablets. And this is probably where the Ten Commandments came from, the two tablets. And the five on the first, one command, one tablet, and the other five on the other second commandment. Really, they're sayings. Okay, just uh, commandments that say sayings. And five, command, five sayings on the top, one commandment, one tablet, and five sayings on the other tablet. So the Mechilta compares the two tablets. Let's compare in our mind's eye. You have five on this column, and you have five on this column. 
Um, so if you look at the Torah, why are there 14 commandments? Because if you look at the Torah carefully, these commandments are not just one. Look at the commandments of, of say, number one. They're not just one strict commandment. It, it, it specifies other things in the same sentence. And that's how the Rambam uh, made it into 14. There's 14 different commandments. I am the Lord your God who took you out of the land of Egypt, the house of bondage. You will have no other God. Okay, that's two. And then it says in the second commandment, which we call the second commandment, says don't make images which are in the heavens or in the, in the earth below or in the, in, the, in the seas. Don't make images. That's an extra. Don't bow down to them. That's an extra. Right? I am the Lord your God who is jealous God. And I remember the sins of the fathers and the children for three and four generations for those who hate me. Okay? Don't take God's name in vain. Because Hashem will not cleanse someone who takes God's name in vain. Remember Shabbat. And then it says, don't work on Shabbat. So the Ramam puts another one. Okay, so that's an extra one over there. If you look at them, you'll see there's much more detail in each saying. It's not just one commandment, it's a hybrid. Okay, it's a few commandments in one, in one saying. So let's just try and picture the first five and the last five and try. We're going to go through them one by one. I am the Lord your God. Okay, that's number one. Number six. First one on the, on the second tablet. Don't murder. Why? When a person murders someone, they are lessening the image of God in this world. Every human being has a soul. When you murder a human being, not you, but if anyone murders a human being, they are lessening God's, the souls in the world, and therefore you're lessening the power of God in the world. Amazing. So that's the comparison. I'm Lord your God. Don't murder. Don't kill the presence of God in the world through someone. Don't have any other gods? Don't commit adultery. That's adultery to God. Because there's other gods. It's like committing adultery to God. Don't swear falsely by God's name? Don't steal. Because if a person steals, eventually in, in Jewish courts, you have to go and swear. So a person who steals in a court might have to swear as well and have to take a false oath. So don't swear falsely. Don't steal. You may have to take a false oath. Number four, remember the Sabbath? Number nine, don't give false testimony. We don't realize when, we're, when a person keeps Shabbat, Chavis Chaim is a beautiful idea. You're waving a flag. I believe in God, the creator of the world, in six days and rested on the seventh day. When a person keeps Shabbat, we are believing that God took us out of Egypt, the land of slavery, and now we're not slaves. We're waving a flag. A person keeps Shabbat is giving testimony. That's the point. In fact, the Vaychulu in the synagogue, you have to stand up because you're giving testimony that God created the world. Friday night. We stand up. We stand up for Kiddush on Friday night as well. Because we are giving testimony. When you give testimony in a court, you have to stand up. So we're giving testimony. It's edut. So don't give false testimony. You break Shabbat. You're, you're giving false testimony. You, you're not telling everyone you're keeping Shabbat because you, you believe in the creation of the world. Number five, honor your father and your mother. Right? Why? Because whoever is jealous eventually would have children who will not honor them. If your child knows you're jealous of others, they won't honor you. If they know that you're happy with who you are, what you have, the child will honor the parents. Usually, okay. Plus, a person who covets, especially someone else's wife, and does things, adultery or whatever things, and he, his children will not honor him because he, the children won't know who he is. So, anyway, so there's a comparison between the first five and the last five, a beautiful comparison that Lokilta says. So now, just after the Ten Commandments, just, I'm going to close with this. Because a lot of people don't know. After the Ten Commandments, there's three more commandments. After these ten sayings, there's three more commandments. People don't talk about. It ends the parasha of these three commandments. Number one, 
You should not make with me gods of gold and gods of silver. Amazing. You should not make with me. What does that mean? Not instead of me, with me. Not to have other gods in a kind of uh, trinity. You will not make gods with me. Number two, when you build an altar for me, do not build it with metal. We're not allowed to build an altar with metal, with uh, things that are used for war, implements of war, like swords and those things. Everything was made of metal. Before they could have 3D printing, I don't know what they... They're making guns today with 3D printing of plastic. I don't know what they use, uh, but weapons of war. Metal is a weapon of war. Why? Don't lift a metal against the altar because you have profaned the altar. A altar made from hewn stones is pasul in Jewish law. It's not allowed to be used as an altar. Why? Because metal is used to shorten life, and the altar is meant to to lengthen life. In fact, some people don't put it. Leave. Uh, metal implements on the table where they say Amazon. same idea because today our, our, our altar is our table our table we eat that is the altar and therefore you shouldn't put metal on the altar so it's like putting metal on the table Amazon should lengthen a person's life metal shortens a person's life and then it says do not climb my altar with steps so that your nakedness will not be revealed on it this is a law for the Quran who else climbed the altar the altar had to be have a ramp going up to the altar not steps because when a person goes up steps, they are opening their legs, which is, for God, it was like indecent, indecent exposure, even though they're fully clothed. So these three commands are the value structure in which honest Torah living must be based. Number one, don't make gods of silver and gold with me. But it's not only bowing to images, but also living a materialistic lifestyle while observing Torah, instead of worshipping Gold and silver bank accounts. Number two, the second prohibition is creating an altar, which is spirituality, for the material that kills. We are are forbidden to kill in the name of our beliefs. A holy war is antithetical to Judaism. Holy war. Number three, when the Torah forbids going up the altar by steps, saying that immorality, and the worship of God are incompatible, which, by the way, most temples in those days were centers of immorality. Temples to idolatry were centers of immorality. So that is the diff- that's the, those that's the significance of these three commandments. But let's just think about Yitro, his how the events that happened around him penetrated his brain, and let's think about this week's parasha when we hear the Ten Commandments, how they should also penetrate our brain, and let's try and change and let's try and a vehicle. Find find a vehicle that will also change us, like it changed you, draw. What can set fire to our souls as well? There's Radash, we'll all uh, use this parasha to become more spiritual and better people. Amen. And ble- many blessings from Yerushalayim, Yerakodesh, Shabbat Shalom. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.